0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, Uh, welcome
1: to a new episode of Datacast. And today I have the pleasure to chat with Jean-Yves Stefan, jean Jean-Yves, JY for short is the CEO and co-founder of Data Mechanics, a wide-combinator-backed startup building a data engineering platform that makes Apache Spark more developer-friendly and more cost-effective. Prior to Data Mechanics, he was a software engineer at Databricks, the unified analytics platform created by the founders of Apache Spark. He did his undergrad studies in computer science and applied mathematics at Ecole Polytechnique in Paris, France, before pursuing a master at Stanford in Management Science and Engineering. So, yeah, uh, J.Y., uh, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, James. Thanks for having me.
1: So, let's start our conversation with uh, a little bit about your educational background. As mentioned, you know, you study computer science and applied math at Eco Polytechnic, a leading French institute in science and technology. So, can you share a bit about your time in university?
2: Yeah. First, I mean, these were fun times. Um, So basically in France, I did what people in the US call a bachelor. One particularity about French education, maybe not every school, but the school I attended is that the classes were pretty theoretical. So it was kind of theoretical math and theoretical computer science. I wasn't sure at the time what I wanted to do. Startups were not very popular yet. They were starting to be popular, but um, most of the engineers who graduated from my school, they would actually go into consulting and finance. But yeah, it was a it was a great time. And um, a little later, when I went to Stanford, I I figured out what I wanted to do, and you know more towards soft software
1: engineering. So yeah, let's just talk about your time at Stanford. Dry right up to doing your I guess bachelor. You did your master in management science and engineering at Stanford. Overall, like how was your your experience? You know, at Stanford, and what were some of your favorite classes that you took in there?
2: Yeah, it was amazing. I got to Stanford in 2013 and everyone was talking about, you know, doing startups, technology, data science, machine learning. The first class I took uh, was CS229 machine learning with um, Andrew uh, Eng. And that started my interest for the field. Having a bit of background in math helped a lot. Um, But then I think the the class that I really liked the best was CS246, Mining Massive Datasets. This was really a big data class. So the, it told you, it explained you how Hadoop work, how distributed engine works. And um, that had the right mix of, um, you know, computer systems knowledge, but also a little bit of math, a little bit of abstraction, because you need to think about how to distribute a problem, how to make it such that a cluster of machines can work together and solve a problem. Uh, So these were my favorite classes, and I also had the chance to be a teaching assistant for these two classes. So uh, when teaching assistant, they're the people who uh, who grade the homeworks, who do uh, hold the uh, office hours, and and that was a source of revenue, and that was real work, and that was also a fun work to build a relationship with students.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a great experiment. I actually also got a chance to you know, learn a little bit about the CS2 Fortresses class, I think. They have like an um, online version, and then I kind of went through that textbook a little bit, so I can definitely appreciate some of the very rich content that class provided i suppose that being a ta you know requires you to understand the materials very well right so what, what are some of the fun things that you learn from like teaching content to other people what are some of the challenge and benefits of, of being a ta
2: yeah mm. first not everyone loves that but i really love the fact of trying to just trying to teach and that means um when something is kind of abstract and the person doesn't understand, you need to go through examples and you need to, um, I guess, be a good listener. You know, when you think of a teacher, you, you're more thinking of a speaker, but as a t- teaching assistant, you know, you're working with students in smaller groups and it's also about listening. What is it that they don't understand and maybe how to explain it in different way And then um, for the specific classes that I was teaching, you had students with very different backgrounds. The CS229 class, which is so popular, had 800 students. So some students were really good at math, but not very good at computer science. Then you had the opposite profile and you need to have a bit of both to be good at the class. So um, so yeah, I tried to, to help. I had a bit of background in both. I was not an expert in machine learning. No, <laughs> definitely not. But I, yeah, these were, I had fond memories of, of these times.
1: Mm, awesome. During your grad degree as well, you also spent like one summer interning at Libra, which is a data connectivity platform for the safe and effective use of data. Uh, so yeah, I'm just very curious. What was the internship project that you work on?
2: Yeah, I was um, hired as a machine learning engineer intern. This was my first real machine learning, but also just my first real software engineering. And the project that I worked on is really related to library and business. And it was about trying to identify internet traffic. So, you know, you get a cookie and the traffic is not identified, meaning that you don't know who the person is, they're not logged in, but you still like to use some attributes like the browser they're using, their IP and so on to try to figure out who that person could be. And, you know, the end goal is typically to try to display ads that are more relevant. Yeah, some people could question the morality of that. At least for the duration of my internship, there were some really fun challenges. So I had to collect the data uh, to use some big data framework for that. We were using cascading at the time. And then you had to uh, you know, use notebooks to clean up the data, put in the format you need, uh, train some simple machine learning model. I remember we were using uh, random forests and then move it to production. So it was not rocket science, it was a small project, but it did bear some fruits and um, and I learned a lot of things.
1: Right. Yeah. And definitely very, very practical use of your academic, you know, learning and bring that in and see how, how machines being used in the industry. Right. Um, yeah. After Stanford, you spent the next three years at Databricks, first as a software engineer and then as a tech lead for the Spark infrastructure team. What attracted you to join Databricks in the first place? And what were some of the initial work that you were involved with?
2: Yeah. So I first heard about Databricks through some Stanford professor and also through a friend who interned there. And Databricks was still a relatively small startup. When I joined, we were about maybe 40 or so employees. Uh, So I was lucky to join it when they were still small. Even though they were small, uh, Apache Spark was already starting to be famous. Um, So one class taught us a little bit of Spark and uh, you know, having worked with Hadoop during my internship, I could see how Spark could be much more faster and why uh, it was more efficient to uh, work with the data while it's in memory rather than always writing to disk and so on. So I think, yeah, this just the fact that Apache Spark was famous and that they were working to make big data more simple, that attracted me. And then I would say the second thing that made a strong impression on me is the interview process, <laughs> which was very hard. Like they were asking really hard questions. They had a really hard take-home assignment. And I guess that's the other thing that made an impression. I thought, wow, if, if the interview was so hard, it means the, the team must be really strong. And uh, indeed, I was lucky too, uh, for years. Oh, I I didn't say which initial projects I was involved with. Yeah, I joined. Initially, the team was called Cloud Automation. And so we were basically managing the entire cloud infrastructure of Databricks. And then gradually, I evolved into a specific team called Clusters Team, and then eventually became the lead of that team. Yeah,
1: Mm, I see. Given the fact that now Databricks is very popular and quite a big company now, I think the fact that you joined when the company was like less than 50 people, shows that you, you really kind of have an opportunity to, to observe the curve and growing and seeing that. You know, as as a tech lead for the Spark infrastructure team, your team was responsible for packaging, managing and monitoring of Spark clusters, basically doing all the automation of the launch of hundreds to thousands of nodes in the cloud every day. What were some of the unique challenges associated with such a problem?
2: Yeah, well, it's pretty much what you said, which means we had to scale everything to cope with the growth. When I joined, there were maybe about 20 customers and they were just starting to charge a customer. So it was still pretty small. And then by the time I left, I can't say the number of customers, but probably a few hundreds, maybe a thousand. And we were launching hundreds of thousands of nodes in the cloud every day. And so in just three years, we had to go from, you know, uh, a dozen of customers to to that. So, what were the challenges in terms of really engineering? Well, obviously, it was about scaling everything. So, first, performance. Like we had to figure out uh, which parts of our code were bottleneck. Then, beyond just you know scaling what a single node can do, we had to think of scaling out our architecture. So, how to while we're talking about managing infrastructure, how to make sure there isn't a bottleneck that um, slows everything down, but that your services can scale out. So that was another big challenge. I would say another one is just that as you scale, every potential corner case in your code will be hit. Uh, So even the low probability bugs, they will happen. And uh, since we're talking about a distributed microservice architecture in the cloud, there can be a lot of corner cases, you know, race conditions between multiple services. And and so, yeah, it, it meant we had a lot of support work, okay, lots of customers having some issues that we had to fix, some firefighting. This was a little bit frustrating, but still we were fixing a lot of bugs and we were gradually making the product more stable, more efficient, and launching more and more machines in the cloud every day. Maybe the the last thing that we had to to do, the last challenge was about becoming more data-driven. So in the beginning, when you were startup, you don't have a big observability stack for your software for the metrics and so on, and and this is one thing that uh, we had to do: define uptime, define some KPIs, measure them, improve them, and so uh, yeah. I was really lucky. I would say you know it's it, there's always a bit of luck. I'm really honest. It was lucky to um, even though I had a small contribution to it, but it was luck to see such a growth, and and I learned a lot of engineering skills related to that growth.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. I'm just curious about from that engineering part of view. what are some of the common technologies that you have to use on a regular basis?
2: Yeah, so our stack was in Scala. So most of the, almost all the programming we did was in Scala. Besides Scala, you had to do a little bit of Spark. I was not, you know, working with Spark as a user, but I was managing Spark infrastructure. So we had to learn actually a lot of spark beyond this on the front end we would be using um, javascript and react and at some point our our team which was initially a back end team became a, a feature team so we would also do some front end that was another fun thing to learn and then i mean internally not in the product, but internally, we also started moving our services from you know running on virtual machines to running on containers, and so we had to learn to use Docker and Kubernetes, and that was another uh, yeah
1: fun learning. Mm-hmm. So you first started out as an individual contributor, and then you become like a tech lead. Was there any you know interesting lesson you learned from just managing people?
2: Yes, definitely. I think now the roles are even clearer and some people can focus more on management. Some people will focus more on tech leadership. Uh, At the time I was doing a bit of both. Yeah, I would say... um, I'm a people person, so the, I, I did like the management part. Not every engineer like that, um, because um, you know some people are just really passionate about technology problems. But yeah, I did like to uh, see within the team how we could make people grow, how we could make sure people are happy, they're learning new stuff, how to make sure their feedback is heard, and we're constantly changing our processes to make the team function better. I'm not sure uh, if I have like a silver lining lesson. But yeah, it's a bunch of situations um, that you need to learn from, some human skills, some listening skills. And I learned a little bit. I, I was not a manager for that long either, but I learned a little bit.
1: Awesome. So you spent like roughly about three years at Databricks. Since January of 2019, you have been the co-founder and CEO of Data Mechanics. And the company's mission is to give superpowers to the data scientists and engineers of the world so they can make sense of their data and build application scale on top of it. Can you share the story behind the founding of the company?
2: Yeah, of course. My co-founder, Julian, who's a longtime friend, and he was a data scientist and data engineer at multiple companies. And so he was using Spark as a user. And I had some experience with Spark more as an infrastructure provider. And together, we were a bit frustrated that the data platforms that existed, you know, Databricks and its competitors, they didn't solve some pain points far enough. That was our feeling. We had the the feeling that uh, we could build a data platform that would solve problems for profiles like us. So we wanted to make Spark more developer-friendly for data engineers who have a bit of a developer background. And we also wanted to make data infrastructure more cost effective, because on average, in big data, um, people waste a lot of money on infrastructure because it's not efficiently used, um, like clusters are over-provisioned, you know, they're, they're too large, their, their utilization is low, and so our goal was to, um, yeah, to build a data platform with some automation that solves these problems. So automatically choose the type of instance you would put uh, in your cluster, automatically size the cluster, automatically configure the Spark apps to make them more efficient so that the end user focuses just on building their application. So I guess that was and still is the the founding mission.
1: And I'm just curious, like, how long does it take from conceiving the initial idea until you and Julian actually, you know, create, like, the first version of the product,
2: yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we, I would say that in the first three months, we were just doing uh, user interviews, validating ideas. We were actually testing a few different ideas. And then we started to have a really good feeling on a specific idea, which actually is not the product we operate today. We pivoted a little bit We, uh, at some point. But, but let's say after three months, we started building one product. We started working with one POC customer and then uh, for another three months. And then we got accepted into YC. Y Combinator. And um, during Y Combinator, that's where we pivoted to uh, a more ambitious idea, which is the product we're building today, which is this Databricks or EMR or Dataproc competitor alternative. So yeah, I would say for three months, we were just validating an initial idea. Then we spent another three months pursuing this idea and then another three months in Y Combinator realizing our first idea wasn't good enough and then you know starting to raise funds for our current idea. So maybe nine months until we raised um, our first round of financing and then that's where uh, we started hiring a team and, and working with more customers and so on.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. So let's dig a little bit deeper into some of the technical problems that Data Mechanics is helping to solve. In the launch blog post you know earlier uh, this year, you mentioned that your platform follows three core tenets. First is being managed and serverless. Second is to being integrated into client's workflow. And third is to being, be on top of open source software. So could you mind explaining them in more detail?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the first thing is we said, okay, a managed service. All the commercial Spark platform out there, they say they are managed. But we had the feeling that to really say that you are managed, you should be solving more problems than, than they do. Typically, Spark platforms today, they expose a lot of knobs and they put the maintenance burden on users. So that's what I was saying. You need to decide which type of instance you're gonna put in your cluster, how many nodes to have in your cluster, what kind of memory, what kind of CPU, what type of disks. Uh, Then you need to handle Spark configurations around the parallelism, around memory management, around uh, shuffle. And really, most data engineers they're not Spark experts, you know, and it's normal to them. Spark is a tool, and, and they should be experts in their business pipelines that they're they're trying to build. And so we think, okay, we have some knowledge, some expertise. Uh, let's build a platform that automates the choosing of parameters, the tuning of the infrastructure, so that end users just focus on building their application code, submit it, and then we do the rest. Uh, so that was really the the cornerstone and the the first tenant. The second thing is um, that we're integrated uh, with our customers data stack. By that, we mean that we don't try to solve every problem within the platform. Databricks, my former company, they're like an end-to-end solution that tries to cover all the needs of data scientists. So they have hosted notebooks, they have hosted job scheduler, they have a hosted MLflow for tracking machine learning models. And if you really need all these tools, then Databricks is great for you. It's worth uh, the price. But A lot of companies already have notebooks, okay? They may use a Jupyter or uh, they have a scheduler. Maybe they use Airflow or Prefect or um, Google Cloud Composer. They use Docker to package the dependencies. And so instead of telling them, you know, ditch these tools and buy our fancy product, we said, no, you know, keep using these tools and we'll just integrate with them. So that's why we... We let our users simply point to Jupyter Notebook at the platform. We have a connector for Airflow. Uh, We make it easy to build and run your own Docker images. And because we think that's what data engineers, people who have a bit of a software engineering background like the best, and we focus on the harder problem, the problem that our customers doesn't want to solve, which is managing Spark infrastructure. And then the last tenet was open source and indeed so we build on top of open source and we also contribute to uh, some open source projects and i think that's very important for our customers to trust us they're not going to be locked in with a proprietary platform proprietary api and so on if for some reason they want to um, use another service they can cancel anytime. time we have a pay-as-you-go plan without any commitment and we're based on open source projects it'll be easy for them to port their code their applications to another platform yeah that's pretty much it
1: yeah thanks a lot for really going to the details of, of these different tenants and i and yeah that make a lot of sense which is very uh, provide that flexibility for your clients right they they're being able to utilize some of that features at the same time customize that for their own needs and um, business priorities and just continue on this thread a little bit about you mentioned that Data Mechanics really focus on that sort of managing Spark infrastructure. Essential offering of Data Mechanics is the ability to run Apache Spark on Kubernetes. And you have written before about some of the core concepts of uh, Spark on Kubernetes and evaluates the benefits and, and drawbacks of this new deployment mode. Can you unpack a little bit about this notion for the listeners?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Since 2018, Spark can be deployed on Kubernetes instead of Hadoop Yarn. Uh, so, before, you know, the main, I mean, even today, the main cluster manager that people use is Hadoop Yarn. And now, with the release of Spark 3.1, uh, the Spark on Kubernetes integration is now G8, it's now production ready. Uh, so, what are the benefits of deploying Spark on Kubernetes versus Yarn? First, native containerization. Uh, So Spark is going to be, each Spark application is gonna have a Docker image and you can use Docker to package all your dependencies and even package the Spark distribution. So what this means is that each Spark application can have its own Spark version. There is no global version. There, There aren't any shared dependencies. So really this means each Spark application is fully isolated, but at the same time, you're using a shared infrastructure, okay? The, the Kubernetes nodes, the actual VMs that run the containers are shared. And so that's very cost effective. It means that uh, if a node is ready to run your application, your application will start in five seconds. When your application finishes in five seconds, your containers are gone and the capacity is gonna be used by another app that's running. So really that's the beauty of containerization. And I would say the second benefit, and I actually I started talking about that is cost reduction, like a a single shared infrastructure with very fast starting up of applications, very fast auto scaling also, that makes it um, cost effective. And I would say the third benefit uh, is the ecosystem. I mean, people, like Kubernetes is very popular. There are many tools for, you know, doing monitoring over Kubernetes, for doing security networking, for doing CI, CD, and so on. And you get all of these tools for free when you deploy Spark on Kubernetes. Now, to be fair, let's also give some drawbacks. I would say the main drawback is that today most Commercial Spark platform, they still run on Yarn, and so if you need to run on Kubernetes, you're probably going to do it, you know, yourself in open source, and that requires expertise. Uh, like, you know, Kubernetes is great, but if you don't know anything, Kubernetes probably in, in the first few um, hours or days of using it, uh, you're going to be um, overwhelmed by uh, abstractions, and so you're going to have to learn a little bit of not tribal knowledge, but, you know, definitely some, some expertise. And so that's the reason why we, we built data mechanics. We basically make Spark on Kubernetes easy to use, cost effective, and we manage the Kubernetes cluster so that our end users don't need to become Kubernetes experts. They, in fact, they don't need to, um, to interact with Kubernetes at all. They just Use our web UI. They they just use our API. They just submit their application as a container or as, or as a jar, and then we handle the complexity of Kubernetes uh, for
1: them. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely that new to Kubernetes. I do have a plan to learn about it? And yeah, it's, it seems like like already mentioned that ecosystem. There's a lot of tutorials and website and and you know communities that uh, very passionate about these technologies and. Um, Yeah, it seems like these are really uh, important needs for people who are new to, to the technologies and what we're trying to solve. And just kind of continuing into this thread a little bit, and you also have explained a little bit about how data mechanics make some improvement on the open source version of Spark on Kubernetes and in particular, providing an intuitive user interface, dynamic optimization, integration, and security. So can you just go over some of these improvements in more detail?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So first, okay, how do we compare to open source Spark and Kubernetes? First, we create and manage the Kubernetes cluster for our customers. That's what I said earlier. They don't need to be to have any Kubernetes expertise. We are also going to manage the node pools, so the, the actual nodes, the, the virtual machines that power the cluster. So we're going to scale them when the cluster needs them or to remove them when they're unneeded. Uh, we can also choose the type of instance to put in the cluster automatically. And we can also automatically use a mix of spot and on-demand instances, because you know, spot instances are cheaper, but they can be reclaimed at any time. And so to use spot instances in a safe way, you you need basically to make sure the Spark driver is always on demand and only the executors are on spot. The second thing that we built on top of open source is um, a UI that lets you view uh, the logs and metrics of your Spark application. And that's very important. That's really critical to give Spark developers more feedback, more insights into their Spark applications. Um, What is their performance? What is their cost? Is it stable or not? And I would say the last thing that we add on top of uh, Spark on Kubernetes, is the automated tuning of infrastructure parameters and Spark configurations. So what does that mean? If you have a pipeline that's running on a schedule, let's say it's running daily, we're gonna use the history of the past run of the pipeline to automatically figure out, oh, should we use a different instance type with more memory or uh, should we use bigger disks or should we change the spark configuration about the number of partitions to better parallelize your work and so basically this is the manual tuning work that a data engineer spends a lot of time doing but we automatically do it in our platform and that gives a big performance boost and stability boost
1: Mm, i see yeah thanks for clarifying all those uh, very important features. And uh, yeah, I want to dig a bit deeper on the second part you mentioned about the UI, right? The most recent product that Data Mechanics announced is called Data Mechanics Delight, which is a customized Spark UI that was actually recently open source. So what are some of the problems with the current Apache Spark UI and how does Delight address them?
2: Yeah, so exactly. Delight is about making Spark monitoring better. And when we say it's cross-platform, we mean that obviously Delight is going to be available to our customers, but we're also going to make it compatible with Databricks, with Amazon EMR, with Google Dataproc, and so on. So why are we doing this? What are the problems with the Spark UI? It's hard to know where to start (laughs) because everyone complains about the Spark UI. But let's say that for most people it's hard to know what's going on when they look at the spark ui Uh, it requires a bit of spark expertise and sometimes there can be like major problems with your applications but they're very hidden there are a lot of numbers that jump at you but it's it's hard to figure out what which numbers matter and it also lacks some metrics. Uh, It doesn't have any metrics about CPU usage, memory usage, IO usage, disk usage, or or it has insufficient metrics. So typically most people need to have a separate system, let's say Prometheus or Datadog uh, to view these metrics. But these separate systems, they don't have much knowledge about Spark. So then you're left with jumping back and forth between the Spark UI and uh, your uh, metrics monitoring system. So that's why we built Delight. So Delight, first, I hope will have a better user experience, give a better bird-eye view of what's going on. And it will have new metrics and new visualizations to really show the user what is the bottleneck of their application. Delight is going to be released in stages. We are releasing uh, the next stage with an overview screen at the end of January and then uh, we'll be gradually adding more features. And last, because you were asking about how it works. um, So Delight has an open source agent. The open source agent, you can install it on your infrastructure. So it can be Databricks, EMR, Dataproc, it can be open source, it can be on-premise, whatever. And then this agent is going to stream uh, some metrics to our backend. So before the metrics are streamed, they are encrypted with a personal key that you create when you sign up. And then we are going to store these metrics on our backend. And uh, when you log into our web UI, you're just gonna be able to see a delight. And automatically, after uh, uh, a couple of weeks or I think thirty days, we will clean up the data that you produce. So we we don't hold up to that. Uh, even though it's it's non-sensitive data, we're not we're not looking at the data you work with. We're just looking at metadata about your Spark application. But mm-hmm. we also automatically clean it after thirty days.
1: I see. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the inner mechanism of the two. And yeah, in that part about security and you know uh, not looking at metadata, I think that it we resonate with a lot of enterprise big company some security you said next release in end of january twenty twenty one what are some of the things on your product roadmap for the tools in the say the rest of the year for example
2: yeah Okay, so on the light, the next release, end of January, will have an overview screen that indicates where your Spark application spends most of the time. And you can quickly see some CPU metrics and correlate them with jobs and stages. But in the future, we plan to replace every screen of the Spark UI. So in, in January, when you, when you open up a specific job or stage, it still takes you to the old Spark UI. And so we're going to keep replacing these screens. And then something else that we we want to do is we want to add high-level recommendations. So when we realize, you know, sometimes in the data we can see, oh, you're you're reading an input data set that is very skewed, that is very imbalanced, and as a result, uh, your Spark application um, is not well parallelized and you're and it's slow. And so we can give some high-level feedback, uh, say, oh, you should um, change the partition key. You should use salting or to to avoid this problem or Oh, we realize that you're over-provisioning the cluster. You're creating way too many machines. You could use a smaller cluster without reducing your downtime. So this is another section we want to add to delight. And yeah, I mean, j- just that should be should be, pretty, yeah, should be pretty great. Hopefully it won't take the entire year 2021. I think um, by the end of the first or the second quarter, we'll have a, a full product on that on that side.
1: Yeah, I think I think that part about those recommendation for the clients is kinda of tie back on a earlier point about how, you know, data mechanics is trying to do automated tuning of this node cluster, right? And then that by by doing that you can suggest, let's like, say, for your clients, what knobs to tune and what, what sort of cluster shut down, what instance to spot on, and things like that.
2: Exactly. Um we're we're using the same expertise and part of the same code internally to produce the two note that they're not fighting against each other but they're actually complementary because with auto-tuning we can only change configurations or infrastructure but we we cannot rewrite your spark application code even though sometimes the performance is bad because of the application code so with delight we're going to be able to give feedback to the developer so that they can understand their code better and change it. So the two things um, at the same time, they build upon each other, but they're also really complementary in terms of the, the value proposition to the, the end user.
1: I see. This is more like a product question, but obviously like a, a startup, like, you know, have limited resources and time and energy and choosing the type of product to build is, is very uh, important. And um, I'm curious, what are some of the decisions you, you have made in order to commit to building this product?
2: Yeah, indeed, um, building this product took some resources and we don't uh, have uh, infinite resources. This product is inspired by you know, feedback from our customers. So like it's a request from our customers that will help them a lot. And we realize, except that just building it for our customers, we can also open source the agent and make it available to, um, to people using Spark everywhere. And this way it, it gives us a lot of visibility. People are going to start using Delight and they'll learn about data mechanics and then they'll think, oh, actually, um, we have a project to you know move to the cloud or we have a project to change cloud provider or we're we just we're just not very happy with our current Spark platform. Um, why don't we give it a try to data mechanics? So that's why there's also some, um, obviously, um, business benefits uh, out of building this free product.
1: Mm, I see. So you're killing two birds with one stone, right? Like what, Yes. What, uh, satisfying feature requests from customers and... Reaching out to the broader open source community and to build exactly. aware some awareness. You have recently written a thought leading piece on how to be successful with Apache Spark in 2021. Would you mind going over some of the key predictions that you brought
0: up?
2: Yeah, this article, we, we wrote it with a consulting company who were who works with a lot of uh, different companies using um, Spark. And so they kind of explained what problems they were seeing in the field. And the problems were that it's still hard to develop with Spark and uh, that it's also hard to manage the Spark infrastructure. So the first point, this is why we're building Delight to give better feedback to developers so that they can develop, debug their application in in a better way. The second part, managing the infrastructure. I think Spark on Kubernetes will be a game changer. We already see it today. So many companies start adopting it, even some, the big commercial platform, they're moving towards it. So with Spark 3.1, it'll be officially production ready. I expect a lot of more companies will adopt it and and it will solve a lot of problems and i would say another maybe prediction is that as these technologies mature people sometimes start to realize that they're paying too much compared to what they get you know that their bill for their spark infrastructure is is huge even though maybe they're wasting a lot of uh, compute resources so the, the bill could be cheaper, and so that's why I think the kind of managed platforms that we propose, where it's in our best interest to make the customer's data infrastructure as efficient as cost effective as possible, will also get more popularity. Um, so I call that the serverless approach.
1: I think that last point is really important because you know if you use like, like a big platform, there's a very standard pricing tier, right like you have to pay that much amount no matter what usage you use. So it seems like from what you propose here is like the price depends on the actual compute time because more it pays for the usage and that, that scale to the money, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Our pricing metric is a bit different from competitors. Our competitors, it still pay as you go. You know, it's not like a fixed subscription, but it's based on the number of machines that you run. But it's up to you as a data engineer to make sure you're using the right number of machines, to make sure the applications are well-parallelized and that these machines are are used, they have a high utilization rate. And on average, they don't. On average, a lot of people start a cluster to run their notebook, then they go into a meeting and the cluster does not scale down and they're wasting a lot of money. Uh, So with our pricing scheme at Data Mechanics, we only charge our customers the management fee when the machines are actually used by spark and so it's in our best interest to avoid the waste because we don't make any money when when compute infrastructure is wasted and yet yeah, our customers are pretty happy with this pricing scheme
1: yeah for sure let's take off your data head and, and put on your founder hat. Uh, data mechanics went through the wide community program in you know summer 2019 as you briefly mentioned earlier in our conversation what were some of the most valuable lessons that you have learned as a father from this experience?
2: Yeah, Y Combinator and um, so the startup accelerator. I would say one thing that we learned is to be bold. I think most startup founders, entrepreneurs, they are, you know, they want to change the world and so on. But I would say for me and my co founder, since we're both engineers, I don't know it didn't come naturally to us to change. We we're going to change the world. You know, we like when there's just two people and you're just working with one POC customer, <laughs> it's hard to say that, but you have to because you're really setting a vision. You're setting a vision to to yourself, to your co-founder. You're setting a vision to your investors. You're setting a vision to your employees and you're setting a vision to your clients also because they, they're not just buying the product the way it is today. They want the product to get better. So that's one thing we learn. you know, be bold. The second thing is talk to your users. That's a popular YC um, mantra. And indeed, it's, it's really important to make sure you're bringing real value and you're solving a real problem and you're really differentiating the product. And, and you can't do this by spending more time on a sheet of paper and thinking about pros and cons, but by talking to as many users as possible. And the last thing I would say that we learned there, I mean, there were other things, but the last thing I should mention is um, that the only advantage that startups have over big companies is focus. And so the only way to enter a market like the Apache Spark market is by figuring out what is the ideal customer profile that you want to work with, that you want to attract, and solve their pain points really well. And so that's why, you know, we focused on data engineers, people who write uh, Spark pipelines and process a lot of data, and um, make Spark more developer friendly and cost effective to them.
1: I see. So I want to really dig deeper into that last part you mentioned about focus and finding the right set of customer, in general, like finding adopters of products is notoriously challenging for any uh, enterprise product, right? So, what were some of the challenges that you have overcome to find these early customers?
2: Yeah, you're correct. It's very hard, particularly in the big data scene, because you know people use your software to handle their entire company data, and so you can't screw up, and they need to trust you to do that. So. There are a couple of things that helped a bit. First, I mean, doing Y Combinator made us more trustworthy. Second, I came from Databricks. I had some personal relationships that helped find some of our early customers. But I would say the other thing that really helped is um, producing quality technical content, like the blog posts you saw, the conferences. They give you credibility and they give you visibility such that Instead of me trying to do outbound sales and, you know, trying to knock on the door of companies and asking whether they're interested in our Spark platform, it's the other way around. It's there is some frustrated Spark user or there is just someone who wants to start a new Spark project and they look online, you know, how to run Spark on Kubernetes and they find us. And so this solves the timing issue. It means... You start talking with customers when it's the right time for them instead of going at random. That really helped us. Um, it still does.
1: Thanks for sharing those uh, valuable feedback. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. What are some of the valuable lessons that you have learned to attract the right people who are excited about uh, data mechanics uh, mission?
2: Yes, So for the first thing is uh, for the first hires, we hired entirely through the network. When you give this advice, people are like, oh, yeah, you, you should have some friends that are available. But actually, network are not necessarily direct friends. It takes work to go through your network. So what I would do is I would call my friends if they do someone who, who could be a good fit. And I would not just ask friends. I would ask past colleagues. I would ask uh, our investors. And then you need to be a little bit insistent to them, uh, because uh, sometimes they don't they don't think of someone uh, in the first place, but then you can share with them an actual LinkedIn search, you know, who search for a few keywords, or I'm looking for a front-end engineer or DevOps engineer in this location, and ask them to go through the people they're connected with and think if they can find someone. So that was a bit of a of a hack we did to find our first hires and the hires that come from network they're more engaged they're easier to convert and you have a lot of trust and the trust goes both ways another lesson i would say is to make everyone an owner so we're we're giving uh, stock options to all our employees and uh, you know when you're join a very early stage startup that's also what you come from you uh, this startup is going to become your baby so um, so it's important that you you're rewarded with ownership of the company And I would say the last point is about maybe having a bit of a chat with your co-founders or with your early employees to define a culture, you know, define the kind of people that you like to work with and then trust your instinct to identify these people. I don't have a recipe for, you know, figuring out if someone fits your culture, but having an initial chat with the early team to say, oh, these are the people, the quality that we like in, in the people we want to work with it helps a lot then in the hires.
1: Fantastic. And then finally, if a mechanic is based in the heart of Paris, how would you describe the broader data and tech community in France?
2: Yes, so indeed, we are based in France. We actually, half of our team works remotely and customer-wise, most of our customers are actually in the US. The reason half of our team works remotely is because obviously um, COVID-19, the epidemic started, just after we did our first hire so we we actually work remotely a lot now about the data and tech community in france it's really thriving i think there are a few assets in france Uh, you have talented engineers some really good engineering schools and then you also have some attractive um, government grants and tax subsidies for startups yeah, that's, that's why we're based in France, even though most of our customers are in the U.S. It's because we can hire great talent there. Probably when we do our next uh, round of financing, we'll keep the engineering team in France, but we'll have our sales, marketing, solutions architect in the U.S. because that's still where most of our customers are. But yeah, overall, uh, France is a, is a great place to to start. Many entrepreneurs, it's, it's a good environment.
1: I was curious on that point, like, you know, you try to dig deeper into the US market. Was there any like distinct differences in terms of first like the um, adoption of big data too in the US versus like inside in Europe or in France? Like you said you mentioned you want to expand more amount to into the US market and what are some of the strategy that you, you're thinking about to make that a reality.
2: Yeah. yeah. We started focusing on the US market from day one because mm-hmm. indeed it it's different than the the French or European market. I would say, on average, uh, if you just look at Spark users, there are maybe um, two or three times more Spark users in the US than in Europe. So it's just a bigger market. But also, in terms of the way they buy software, there are a lot more startups in the US who. <laughs> would trust a product like us, you know, even though we're also a startup, versus in France, the companies that use Spark are maybe more established or big companies. And they only um, buy a software if it's, if it's very well known or if it's been recommended by a consulting company. So for all these reasons, it's relatively easier to start in the US. And um, so that's why we focus on the US. And that's also why we're probably going to hire a solutions architect in the U.S. soon because, I mean, right now we just we just work really late to be on the same time zone of our customers, but it'll be helpful when we have people on the U.S. soil. Uh, uh, even though during COVID-19, most meetings happen over Zoom, but it's still nice when you're on a similar time zone. Yeah, certainly.
1: Very interesting insights on all those differences. J.Y., at this point of our conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can just give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the big data universe whose work you admire.
2: Yep, so uh, Yuri Leskovich, who was my Stanford professor of the CS246 um, Mining Massive Datasets class that we mentioned at the beginning. Second, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, from Amazon for his API mandate. Uh, So if you don't know about that, uh, it's when he told his teams that every team at Amazon should interact with each other through API and they should think API such that these are APIs that could be customer facing. And that's actually what created um, AWS. It's because AWS was a service they built internally uh, for their data infrastructure, but they thought about it in a way that could be exposed to customers. So that was really strong. And then uh, Mate Zaharia, the CTO of Databricks, who's creator of Spark, a very, very bright guy.
1: (laughs) Number two, uh, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop better engineering master.
2: Yeah, I had to ask uh, our engineering team for that one. Uh, The book we would recommend is Designing Data Intensive Applications, uh, The Big Ideas Behind Reliable, Scalable, and Maintainable Systems by Martin uh, Kleppmann. And yeah, I had to ask my team because me personally, I mostly learned uh, what I did um, by doing, but yeah, different personalities with respect to learning by books. And it's a really good book, so I can recommend it.
1: Number three, Imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring big data engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
2: I would tweet about the fact that big data engineers are just software engineers who happen to specialize on on a specific domain. But to be a successful big data engineer, you need the same skills as to be a successful software engineer, particularly with the new trends that are coming in the market. So I would say learn... How to package applications with Docker. Learn good software engineering skills to make your code testable, maintainable, ex- extendable, scalable, and so on. Yeah, it's not quite a tweet, but I would just uh, I would encourage them to learn these skills.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a great way to end our conversation. Zhang uh, Yves, I, I really appreciate you uh, spending your time with me today. Going through over virtual spare and. Studying in Eco Polytech and at Stanford, getting into the world Apache Spark via Databricks, creating data mechanics, getting into YC. A lot of great lively discussion re- regarding the state of Apache Spark in 2021, the delight product that you guys are working on, as well as some of the benefits and drawbacks of using Spark on Kubernetes. And I think you know some of the lessons you learned from being a father, hiring, finding early customers, you know, maintaining a culture. I think resonates to a lot of entrepreneurs, not just on big data space, but also in, in general. And i will be sure to include all the uh, links to, um, you know, some of the technical content that we, we talk about today to the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to go over them and reach out if they uh, interested more into digging a bit deeper into the world of Apache Spark. Really appreciate you spending your time with me today. Hope you enjoy the great rest of your day
2: absolutely thank you for having me for this beautiful podcast i hope this was useful to the audience i'm sure i can also learn things from the audience so um, so tell them they can connect with me on twitter or linkedin and have a conversation and, um, and yeah again thank you
0: well that's the wrap for another episode of datacast hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today you can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.